Well, church, let me invite you to turn into the, to the book of Colossians this morning as we continue our study of this wonderful book, and uh, as we continue to explore really Paul's prayer here in the book of Colossians. Many have um, made note of Paul's prayers, in particular what are called his prison epistles. And so uh, he wrote four letters from prison, and in all four of them are these glorious and beautiful prayers that have inspired so many. And of course, uh, I trust it's inspired us as we've considered uh, now for two weeks. This will be the third week, uh, Paul's prayer here in Colossians chapter 1. And so, uh, though we're only going to be considering the, the last three verses this morning, since we've studied the, the previous verses already, let me just read the whole uh, prayer to you, beginning in Colossians 1 verse 9. Hear now the word of God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, which we can now study and consider this morning. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would help us to have attentive hearts and uh, willing minds to receive what you have for us and that we might uh, take it, and be formed by it, be made more into the image of Christ. In particular, I pray this morning that you would give rise in our own hearts a spirit of gratitude, even as we're instructed in these verses, that we would be thankful people for all we have comes from you. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. It was in January of 1546 that Martin Luther traveled to the town of his birth to settle a political dispute between two feuding princes. The journey was about 80 miles. Luther was 62 years old at the time and in poor health. He was joined on this journey by his three sons and his good friend Justice Jonas. Two days after their departure, while they're still en route, Luther wrote to his beloved Kate about the perils of the journey in which they were undertaking. You see, that January was unseasonably warm in Germany, and it had thawed the river that they had hoped to cross, preventing them from traveling directly. He would write, Dear Kate, we have arrived in Halle today at 8, but did not continue because of the Sala River met us with waves and hunks of ice. She flooded the land and threatened to rebaptize us. We take refreshment and comfort in good Turgau beer and Rhenish wine, waiting to see whether the Sala will calm down. The devil resents us, and he is in the water. So better safe than sorry. And so there they uh, would wait for a number of days, and finally the river would subside, and their journey would continue. It was on Valentine's Day that Luther succeeded in reconciling these two feuding noblemen. 
Three days later, Luther prepared to depart, to return to his wife, when he was suddenly taken ill and fainted with fatigue. Luther was aware that this was a sickness from which he would not recover. He commented, even in those days, that he had lived a long life, now approaching 63, when the reality hit him that that babies in, in that day would die by the thousands. He would write, but when I, Dr. Martinez, die at 63, I don't think there'll be more than 60 or 100 in the whole world who die with me. Well, all right. We old ones must live so long in order to look the devil in the rear. After the evening meal, Luther made his way upstairs where he intended to lay down and pray, uh, yet the pain only grew worse. His friends began to rub him with warm towels as the doctors were summoned. After a few hours of sleep, Luther awoke at 1 a.m. in the morning, and he repeated in Latin Psalm 31 and verse 5. In manus tauis commendo spiritum meum, redemisti me domine Deus veritatis. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. At which point his friend Jonas asked him, Reverend Father, will you die steadfast in Christ and in the doctrine you have preached? Luther responded loud enough for everyone in the room to hear, Ja! By daybreak, the great Protestant reformer had gone on to glory. After his death, it was found the following words scrawled on a piece of paper lying at his uh, the desk next to his bed. Half of it in German, the other half in Latin. Wir sein Petler, hoc est verum. We are beggars, that is true. Interesting last words, isn't it? We are beggars, that is true. What do you think he meant by that? Why would those thoughts occupy the great Protestant reformer in his final hours? Perhaps it is because he understood that our relationship with God was one of what he would earlier call one of utter receptivity. His biographer says, we have no legs of our own on which to stand, no mystical ground of the soul uh, to, to, can serve as a basis of our union with the divine. We can earn no merits that will purchase us a standing before God. We are beggars, needy, vulnerable, totally bereft of resources, with which we are to save ourselves. It seems to me it pleases God for us to understand our beggarly status before him. That is that all that we have from God, all that we have rather, is from God. You see, Paul here is praying uh, for the Colossians, isn't he? He's asking them, as we've seen now for a couple weeks, that they would live a life that is pleasing to God. He gets to that, kind of the heart of this prayer, this one long sentence there and at the uh, beginning of verse 10. He says, I want you to live a life that is pleasing to God. He then goes on and gives us four participles as to how we can live that life that is pleasing to God. We can bear fruit, we can increase in knowledge, we can be strengthened in power. Those three we considered last week. Today we see the fourth way in which Paul explains in his prayer, how we live a life that is pleasing to God. And we find it there at the beginning of verse 12 when he writes, giving thanks to the Father. We can please God by giving thanks to him. Of course, Paul has already given thanks to God for them. Look what he said in verse 3. 
we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I, I want just to note in passing the link between thanksgiving and prayer. It occurs to me that gratitude is a result of prayerfulness. That those two are linked. And that if we don't pray, we're probably rarely thankful. And so I, I would just ask you as we begin this sermon on Thanksgiving, ha have you been intentionally thankful this week? Have there, a part of your week been given to giving praise and thanks to God for what you have? And if you were to conclude, you know, really, I have not been very thankful this week, I, I, might, I might guess that you probably haven't been very prayerful also. I think those two are linked together. I think it's hard to pray without giving thanks. And it's probably hard to give thanks without praying. And you see, Paul says, listen, I, I give thanks to God for you when I pray. And now he's praying for them and he's asking God that they too would give thanks to God. And to do so would please the Lord. How do we please God? We do so by giving thanks. So please understand that thanksgiving gratitude is not like the appendix of the Christian life. It's nice to have, but probably unnecessary. Now, gratitude... Uh, uh, is evidently on God's short list on how to please him. In other words, you will not please God if you are not thankful. In fact, gratitude seems to be the mark, at least a mark, of the, a believer, while ingratitude is a mark of an unbeliever. We, Paul will write about the, the final days in 2 Timothy, and he'll say the last days will be marked by people who are lovers of money, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, and ungrateful. How different, my friends, should it be for us Christians then? Perhaps you, you've heard the, uh, the illustration sometimes the pastors use that if you, uh, you bump a glass of water, they might ask you, well, well what, what, what comes out of the glass when you bump it? And of course, you, you, would, you would answer water. And they might then ask a follow-up question. Why does water come out? There's really two answers to that question. Well, you might say, well, because it got bumped is why water came out. The other answer, of course, if they were to ask it, maybe change the nuance, why does water come out? Well, because water was in it. And so you bump it, what comes out is what's in it. If we are therefore, my brothers and sisters, filled with bitterness and greed and pride and, and, and ingratitude, just the slightest bump is going to reveal what's inside of us. A Christian is one you should bump and what, what spills out of them but thanksgiving, gratefulness. We'll see it, by the way, in Paul's life. He'll write about it quite extensively in this book, even. In chapter 2 and verse 7, he'll say we should be abounding in thanksgiving. In chapter 3 and verse 15, we sh he says we should be thankful. In verse 16, we should sing, uh, sing with thankfulness in our heart. In verse 17, he'll say in all we do, we should give thanks. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he'll say we should pray with thanksgiving. In other words, what Paul is trying to communicate to us is that the Christian is marked by a thankful heart. A grateful heart, even when we're bumped. It was Jonathan Edwards, another great man used by God who died from a smallpox vaccine. And Sarah, his, his widow, would write to uh, her daughter to tell her that her father had died rather suddenly. In that letter she wrote, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. I appreciate the honesty of, of that statement. 
She doesn't just go on and say, oh, well, your father's in a better place. She is mourning. This is a difficult time. This is a dark cloud that has settled upon her life. And yet at the same time, you see this expression of faith. This is, this is not some, some uh, accident outside the control of God. God rules, in other words, even in the midst of that difficulty. She says, God has covered us with this cloud. God's providence has determined to bring this terrible event upon us. And so she walks with faith and honesty. She continues her letter saying, he, he has made me adore his goodness that we would have your father for so long. My God lives and he has my heart. And oh, what a legacy your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and there I long to be. I just simply note that Sarah Edwards was bumped rather severely. And what came out of her? Faith and thankfulness. I trust my God. I'm thankful that I had him even for so long. Not despair and bitterness, but gratitude to God. And so I tell you, Christian, even as Paul reminds us here in verse 12, you have much to give thanks for. There's much to give thanks for. And you will probably do well to name them. In your communications with the Father. I've told you before, it seems to me every morning for the Christian is like Christmas morning. You are unwrapping gifts all day long. You woke up this morning, I trust, in something we call a bed with a pillow under your head. And you looked up and there's a roof over Right? You got to give thanks. And you, you got out of bed on these wonderful devices called legs. And those legs carried you to a place called a bathroom. And you turn on a spigot and out came water and it was warm and you brushed your teeth. You see just opening gift after gift after gift after gift. It's like Christmas morning every morning for us that God continues to pour out his blessings upon us. And thus not the things we have but the life in which we live, the peace which is in our heart for we are in Christ. The joy in which he has placed within us, the faith and love. I, I think if you look around both outside and within you'll never run out of reasons to thank God. You'll never run out of reasons to be grateful to him. And as you do, as you thank God, you rightly orient yourselves to God. To verbalize your thanks is to bring your mind and your heart into line with reality. Right? You haven't created any of this. You, this, this is not, though you've worked hard, I trust to accumulate this, you've only used God's gifts in order to get there. And so you ought to put yourself in the position of being a grateful receiver. We are beggars. That is true. And as you do, I think what you'll find as we live a life of gratitude is that thankfulness will swallow that lurking pride that is within us. That it will step on that lingering anxiety that hassles us. It will obliterate that, that, that nagging unforgiveness that plagues us as we thank God. So you might just simply, this week, even as we come into Thanksgiving, start your day with gratitude. Maybe you get together with your spouse or sibling. And have a, a moment of prayer to start your day. Maybe you might name five things today for which you can give thanks to God for. And then to respond to God by thanking him for it. Perhaps you're here this, this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're watching on our live stream and you're not a, not a Christian. I wonder, I would ask you this morning, are you thankful? Are you thankful? I, I trust you will be this week. 
I, I, in particular, I, uh, this is obviously the week of Thanksgiving. I trust that you, you'll be thankful for, for friends and family and for food and for football and, and, and all the rest. There'll be thankfulness in your heart. But I wonder, uh, for my non-Christian friends, are you ever thankful for something, but you have no one to thank? You ever, you ever see a beautiful sunset or a, a delicious warm cup of coffee? Right? Right? Or the, 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 a good night's sleep? You ever thankful you're just alive? You ever thankful you're healthy? Who, who do you thank for that? And why do we even have this impulse within us to do so? Where does that come from? Why should we give thanks for those things? I wonder how you wrestle with those questions. For my Christian brothers and sisters, even as we consider this exhortation in prayer to be thankful, I'm not simply just asking you to find reasons to be thankful, though in some sense I am. Paul actually tells us why we should be. There are three reasons he goes on in this prayer to tell us why we should be thankful, each expressed in a verb. You'll see that we should be thankful because we are qualified, delivered, and redeemed. See, first of all, we should give thanks for you are qualified. Read on in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We are qualified for an inheritance. The literal rendition is that we are qualified for the lot of the inheritance. The lot of the inheritance. Does that sound familiar to you from, from elsewhere in Scripture? The lot of the inheritance. It's the same language that God would use of Israel when they came into Canaan, the promised land. And they inherited the land by lot. You'll remember the lots were cast and each would receive their inheritance according to their lot. Or, or, or they would receive their lot, as it came to be known, they would receive their lot as their inheritance. And so what Paul is actually doing here, I believe, is he is, he, he is uh, calling upon that memory of entering into that promised land by using similar language. You see, the promised land, though glorious in itself, represented something even better. It pointed us to something. It was a shadow of a, of a far greater inheritance in which we will receive. It, of course, pointed to the new creation in which God will redeem this world and we will inherit the earth, as Scripture tells us, a, a new earth, a recreated earth, a, a perfect earth. That, that will be the ultimate land of promise, the, the ultimate place that is flowing with milk and honey that is bountiful and ever restful. It will be an eternal rest, an overflowing bounty, an undisturbed peace, which is our inheritance. And there upon that new creation, there when we receive our inheritance, you'll be freed from all the tears in which you shed. You'll be freed from pain and freed from despair and freed from fear and freed from faithless thoughts. You'll be freed from sin forever. God will take away all the trouble. He he will take away all the trials. He will take away all the, the tests. Satan will be judged and the saints will be rewarded and the war in which we fight will end. The famine must end. The pestilence of this land and the pandemics will end. And there, when you walk into that inheritance, you shall drink from the spring of the water of life and you shall eat from the tree of life and you shall celebrate at the marriage feast of the Lamb and you, and you shall, shall feast upon that banquet and you shall stroll the streets of gold and you shall pass through the gates of pearls and you shall hike upon the holy mountain and walk by the light of the glory of the Lord God Almighty. 
You'll worship alongside Abraham and Daniel and Ezekiel and John Mark. You'll bow your face along with the people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation before the one true God. You'll go find a spear and beat it into a pruning hook because you'll never need a spear again. You'll lead a lion to meet a calf. You'll ask the 5,000 questions that you have and have no answer to. You will explore a new and wondrous corruption-free creation. You're going to sing with the chorus of angels to the holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You're going to shout with the church, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and praise. You're going to listen as your brothers and sisters who died for Jesus or took the gospel to a strange and foreign land testify to God's sovereign grace upon them. You're going to meet that long lost relative who once preached the gospel and you on that day shall see the face of your God. And you'll lay your head in the lap of your Savior. And you'll gaze upon the wounds on his hands. And you will, better than you ever have before, appreciate what has secured this inheritance for you. And on that day, you shall confess to him, he is 10,000 times greater than any blessing he has ever given to you. You have been qualified to receive the inheritance of the saints of life. You've been made an heir. Be thankful. God has qualified you for this inheritance. That's interesting language, isn't it? That we've been qualified to inherit. Because normally the qualifications for an inheritance is simply that you're a, a descendant if you will. So we might ask, how is it that we've been qualified? Well, you notice he says that this is an inheritance of the saints in light. See that phrase there? Of course, you might think, we've explored this earlier in the book of Colossians, some suggest the saint is a specially holy person. Um, maybe you read a phrase like that and you say, well, maybe I have to attain a certain level of sainthood. Maybe I have to attain a little, a certain level of holiness. Many people think that. I have, to, I have to have enough good works in order to get into heaven. If that, if that's how what you think, that, that I have to do enough good things. How do you ever know if you've done enough to qualify? I wonder if, it, if it's like qualifying for the, the Olympics in the, the long jump. I mean, you have to meet a certain distance in order just to make the, uh, the Olympics. I actually looked it up. It's 27 feet. So what if you hit 26 feet, 11 and a half inches? Well, you don't qualify. Is that what Paul means when he says you've been qualified for this inheritance? You've got to meet the minimum standard in order to get it in. Well, I don't think so. And I don't think so for three reasons. He Notice he's giving thanks to God that they're qualified, not to them. He's not saying, well done, you've qualified yourself. It's not something that they have done. In fact, you see, secondly, it's a passive verb. The qualifying was done to you, not by you. And thirdly, he actually goes on to tell them how they've been qualified, which is the second reason Paul tells us we ought to give thanks. For you see, we are delivered. We are delivered. For he tells us in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you see that there was a time in which you were bound in a place of misery, a place of darkness, which the Bible calls the domain of darkness. A terrible and horrible place in which you 
were once bound to. It would almost like imagine, for instance, if I could draw an illustration. Imagine you played for the Baltimore Orioles. And, and every year you started the season uh, hoping that you wouldn't finish in last place once again. Right? And then one day the president of the Los Angeles Dodgers, which by the way, if you haven't heard, are the world champions, right? He trades for you. And he puts you on the starting lineup, right? And so you would say something like, I've been delivered from Baltimore and transferred to Los Angeles, right? And great rejoicing and glory would take place in your life, of course. Right? You see, what, God, is, what is, God has done is he has totally changed the team we play for. The kingdom in which we reside, the one in which we serve. Of course, this is not the language of baseball, is it? It is actually, once again, the language of the Old Testament, even as our brother Craig read to us of God's great redemption of Israel from Egypt. This is what Paul's reminding us of. Israel once lived in the tyranny of Egypt. They were once bound and shackled and beaten in that land. And now they have been delivered from that land and, and delivered into a land of abundance. And once again, I tell you that redemption, which took place in Egypt, the wonderful and glorious as it was, was simply a shadow of a far greater exodus that is to take place. The one to which the prophets would often speak of the one in which we have received in Christ. We, we, our deliverance is far greater than the one we read of in the book of Exodus. For our bondage was not to some type of physical tyranny. It wasn't to some, some political slavery. Our bondage was to sin and Satan himself. We lived in a realm of darkness. What was it when the mobs came from Jesus? Remember that with, with their swords and clubs and torches? What was it that Jesus said? This is the hour of the power of darkness. It's a domain in which so many live today, not just with, without God, but, but against God, members of a rebel kingdom. I, I, don't, I don't know if, you, if, if you're like me, but you kind of, you, you, occasionally you, you summon up enough courage to turn on the news. And maybe it lasts for about five minutes where you can't handle it anymore. You just shake your head in disbelief as to what, what is happening in this world. And I mean, just think 10 years ago and how, how things have changed. And it does not seem for, for the better. And it just seems like this world is in, in utter chaos. So how can this happen? I'll tell you how it can happen. Scripture tells us it's the domain of darkness. It's the reign of sin. And we, by the way, were complicit in that rebellion. We were hostile and at enmity. There was at one point a war going on between us and God. The Bible says we are ungodly. We were irreverent. We had no fear of God, no worship of God, no respect or, or deference to God. We lived in the darkness of sin and transgression. And he has delivered us. He has transferred us. And he brings us into the kingdom of the Son which he loves. My brothers and sisters in Christ, be thankful, for you have been delivered. It was a number of years ago, I, I took uh, my three oldest kids backpacking up in the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York, and I had hiked around up there before in its glorious wilderness, and we must have been 15 miles from the nearest road, and deep into the backcountry, and there was this beautiful lake that I had visited years prior. They called Duck Pond, but it was this, this glorious lake, um, and I wanted to take my kids back there, and so we finally made it about, about three days of hiking, made it to Duck Pond, and to my dismay, the beaver dam, which had formed that lake, had been blown out, and so the lake had vanished, at least 
at least the large lake had vanished. There was a small lake in the middle of where the large lake used to be. So I thought, well, at least we'll, we'll, we'll hike up to the edge of this, this little lake. And so we started to walk towards that little lake, and, and we, we, we got into the old lake bed. And I, I, about 20 feet into the old lake bed, the ground started getting a little soft. And eventually I stepped, and mud kind of came up over my shoe, you know, kind of with that, that slurpy motion, just right up over my shoe. And I thought, well, that's not good. I took another step, and that foot, not only did my, that step, not only did my foot sink down, that the mud actually came up to the middle of, of my calf. I thought, well, maybe I don't want to go to this new lake, right? And so I said, well, let's make it back to the shore. By the way, my children are just skipping along top of this stuff, no problem whatsoever. And so I pulled my foot out, and I took another step, and this time um, my, my foot sank not to mid-calf, but all the way to my knee. And, and, and you, by this point, there's kind of the alarm bells begin to ring in your own heart, and so I remember trying to get my leg out that was mid-calf, and you push down on the ground, and, and I remember going down up to my, my elbow as I tried to pull that leg out, and eventually I got that leg out, and I put my weight on it, and the mud came all the way up to the middle of my thigh. And so I was knee-deep in one leg and thigh-deep in the other, and about 20 feet from where I wanted to go. Could you imagine at that point if just a hand came down and grabbed you? and delivered you from the muck and the mire, and put you back on solid ground. Of course, that's what's happened for you, Christian. You were wallowing in the muck and the mire of your own sin, and God has brought you someplace far greater than solid ground, but into the kingdom of the son he loves. Your allegiance is now changed. You now live for that king today. Your realm is not darkness and sin, but love and light. In fact, it's so glorious. You notice that Paul switches pronouns at this point. Up to this point, he was using the second person pronoun, you and you and you. But this thought seems to be so glorious to Paul that he wants to include himself, as he says there in verse 13, he has delivered us, he says, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. I'm part of this too. Salvation is a rescue mission. Christ has come to invade the Satan's territory and he is plundering his people. In fact, he is freeing his slaves, as you see thirdly and lastly, the reason that we might give thanks is that you are redeemed. You are redeemed. For we read in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, when the Bible speaks of it, is a reference to a transaction in which a ransom is paid to free a slave. And so Paul explains to us that we were at one point unqualified we were in a rebellious kingdom, and we were thirdly enslaved. And now we have been set free in Christ. In this wonderful phrase, I love it there in verse 14, in whom we have, in whom we have, in Christ we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Give thanks this meeting of former slaves. You have been freed in Jesus. We ought to have great gratitude in our heart. We have been redeemed. How foolish, therefore, is it for us former slaves to return to our former ways? It's just foolish, isn't it? Could you imagine an emancipated slave clamoring for the shackles? 
Oh, if I could just get back to the plantation and the whip upon my back. It's just utter folly. It's ridiculous. Is that not what we do when we return to our sin for which Christ has redeemed us from? When we are bitter and unforgiving and greedy and prideful and angry. It's, it's just not evil. It's ridiculous. It's folly. We've been purchased out of it because we have been forgiven. You see, they're in whom we have redemption, of, uh, redemption, the, what is that? The forgiveness of, what is it? Sins. The forgiveness of sins. I increasingly hear uh, Christians talk, pastors talk, and, and sometimes I read it in the books, of, of sin described as unhealthy behavior. Sin is unhealthy behavior. I'm troubled by that. Because it seems to me that we're redefining sin as only what is good or bad for us. Of course, sin is unhealthy behavior. I, I, I would affirm that. But, but when we only define it in that way, we lose how sin is related to God. And I think our culture kind of uh, emphasizes this. If there is sin at all in our culture, it, is, uh, it seems to me the chief sin is feeling bad about yourself. Right? Not reaching your potential. So I just want to be clear, in case there's any confusion, that sin, when the Bible speaks of it, ultimately is a moral offense to the creator. It is wicked, and it's wrong, and we all have done it over and over again, 10 billion times. And we will continue to do it, sadly, until we are glorified. Therefore, we should be thankful that in Christ we are forgiven. That in Christ the 10 billion sins that you have committed are forgiven. You want to please God, therefore. Thank him for the forgiveness in which you have received. Verbalize that to him. I wonder, when is the last time you have just been overcome with gratitude because your sins are no longer held against you by a holy and perfect God? That cleansing in which you have received. I read recently of a mother of a boy named Arthur who at age three, developed cancer, a cancer he would fight for the next five years. Arthur's mother would write to um, his doctor explaining that Arthur was the result of an extramarital affair. She had confessed this sin to her husband, and he loved Arthur as his own, for he had forgiven her. But she couldn't really forgive herself. In particular, what she was troubled by, that the man that she had an affair with gave her a concoction which she drank in hopes of inducing an abortion. Of course, that did not work. Arthur was born. But she had this plaguing guilt that perhaps that concoction caused Arthur's cancer. That her sin brought such suffering on her son. She would write, it's only when she returned to the scripture of her childhood and she began to read the Bible. She underlined Every time she saw forgiveness mentioned. And she found it mentioned over and over and over again. A holy God forgiving a wicked people because of the work of Christ. And as she did, she felt that burden roll off her back as it was lifted. As she found her, her faith and her gratitude in what Christ has done for us. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're plagued by guilt, go to the cross for Christ has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. What do you say? Has he turned a blind eye to it? 
Just sweep it under the rug? No, my brothers and sisters, he has not. He has paid for it. For he has died, as we shall consider uh, in verse 20, and when we get there, this glorious truth that through him, that is Jesus, he has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Where does this forgiveness come from? It comes from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you a beggar? Are you a beggar? Do you give thanks? You must, if you are to please God. And if you can think of nothing else for which to give thanks, you might give thanks to God that he has qualified you and delivered you and redeemed you. Our Father in heaven, we do offer you our great and heartfelt thanks for all that you have done for us in Christ. It is certainly these three things and 10,000 times more as we consider who we were apart from Christ and who we now are in Christ. How can we not but live a life of utter gratitude and thankfulness? And so we praise you that we belong. We are your heirs. That we are in your kingdom and that we former slaves have been redeemed by Christ. Will you bring that redemption to those who are perhaps here or listening that might not know Christ? May they realize that there is forgiveness found in Him, not by doing enough good, but by trusting Him through faith. May you work in their lives so that they might yield themselves calling out to Jesus, even now, have mercy on me, a sinner. I trust in Christ as my Savior. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.